Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Now, there has been a couple of things that I want to talk about that's happened this week. Uncharted started filming. Tom Holland has posted some stuff online. Uh, he has posted... what well, He's got new hair, he's got a new, new bod... People are not quite, still not sure about Tom Holland as Nathan Drake. I've not played the games, but I have seen bits and pieces of it. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a video game film, so it's probably going to be bad anyway. So, I mean, fair enough. They're gonna, they're doing something different. But I ideally would have wanted someone slightly older. But who cares? Well, I mean, lots of people care. I was going to say who cares, but lots of people do care. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think. I don't know. I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt for now. Um, there's obviously a reason behind it, but um, it's not what I would have gone with. But hey, Tom Holland's a big thing at the moment, and he's uh, he can be there for the long run. So why not? Uh, the other thing is the Batman um, has got a spin-off show uh, in in the works, centered around Gotham Police Department. Which I think is interesting, especially because we haven't actually had the actual film yet, so you don't know how well it's going to do, but they've got faith in it. So, I mean, I'm kind of looking forward to that because it means that you get to see a load of villains in all sorts of... I mean, it's basically Gotham the show, right? Again. I mean, I watched all of Gotham and I enjoyed it. But, I mean, I I, I love this sort of stuff, so I'm I'm all for getting more of it and different interpretations of different characters and stuff, so... And I think the Matt Reeves stuff is the more is looking to be more detective stuff, which is what I'm all about. So yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of excited for this a little bit because um, it gives you because the thing with the Nolan trilogy is like it's I really liked it and stuff. You've not you've got, you've got like six villains in it, and I think it it will be fun to see. And it's quite a realistic, grounded world, so you're not going to get like a killer croc or something. Whereas I feel like this, they're going to go a bit more out there, but it's going to be more detective. It's going to be yeah, and it's going to be interesting, and the fact that you've got this spin-off show gives you more scope to actually do villains as well, which to do, which I, which is part of the best thing about Batman in my opinion. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, first thing of this week uh, is Alpha Set. Um, so that's where I, this is where I take three films um, that begin with the same letter of the alphabet, and I just. Just have a watch, have a have a listen, and uh, just see what I think. I've not seen any of these films before. Um, you might have done though, um, and you might also have watched them along with me if you have followed me on Twitter and uh, saw what film because I post on a Monday what films I'm watching. So if you saw that and you decided, yeah, I'll watch them too, then you might have watched them as well. Um, the first film. So this week, I, so sometimes I like to try and do a, a little trilogy. It's not always this, not always possible, but sometimes it is. I did the I did the good trilogy. I did the in trilogy last week, and now this week we're doing the John trilogy. They're all about Johns, uh, and this first film is J Edgar. Um, obviously, it's not called John Edgar, but it is a, the J does stand for John, so it does count. Um, so this is the life and times of the former FBI director J Edgar Hoover from his early days in law enforcement all the way to his death. Uh, it came out in 2011, 
Uh, it's got a $35 million budget. It made $85 million, so it did okay. It made a little bit of money, but it's not, not huge numbers. Um, it's got a 6.5 on IMDb, 43% on Rotten Tomatoes, so kind of middling. I gave it a 6 out of 10. Um, I thought it's, a, it, it's, got, it's an interesting life and an interesting storytelling technique, but there's just too much of it. Um, so it basically, it, it kind of flips between the old Edgar... J. Edgar Hoover in the 60s and then the younger Hoover from like 1919 onwards um, and so the storytelling technique is that the old Hoover basically recounts his days to young agents that they then type it up um, like that's nothing particularly special but it does take an interesting turn later on which impacts everything that you've seen up to then which I thought was quite interesting um, so Leonardo DiCaprio plays the lead role Um both old and young um so obviously he himself he plays he is as himself for the younger version but in the old version he needs some old style makeup um naomi watts is also in this as is army hammer and they also get oldified um the makeup is good but it's not wholly convincing and i think like army hammers is probably the worst looking he doesn't even look like army hammer that much but uh, I think the switch in between, because it, it, it flips and flops, I think the switch in between old and young doesn't help it. It kind of makes it look worse because you can't get, because you might get used to it after like a few minutes, but then you switch back to young and then you switch back to old and you're like, oh, this is, oh, we're old now, like sort of thing. And it's just, you can't really get used to it. I mean, it's not a huge issue because like 60 plus percent of the film is kind of spent in the past. Um, so it doesn't matter that much. But I don't know it, and it's kind of a lower budget film, like thirty five million. So I don't know. Um, it's probably it's not too bad, really. It's not it's not like oh my god, this is horrible, and like you can't follow it or it doesn't look right. Like they look like them older, but I think you know what through me, I think they should just have some more contact lenses, some contact lenses or something, because you've got young Leonardo DiCaprio's eyes in this old man makeup, which I thought was alright, his was probably the best, but it's just like, a bit, mm. um, but yeah, um, so with this film, I've kind of got the same problem as I do with a bunch of other biopics, or like, based on true event films, in that it covers too much, it covers too much of this guy's life, uh, lots of it's kind of brushed over quickly, and you can't dwell on it, and then, and like that's kind of it's not even like lots of it it's basically all of it pretty much is kind of brushed over and like they just touch on things and so you can't like focus on anything like it would i feel it would have benefited from focusing on like one singular event and then you just kind of pepper in other things like you just go oh yeah this happened or this happened but we don't necessarily see it like i feel like you don't spend enough character enough time with the characters at any point to really connect with them like cuz you chain as a person, you change quite a lot from decade to decade or year throughout the years. And so you don't... And because it doesn't focus on, like, a 20-year-old Jager Hoover or a 30-year-old Jager Hoover for that long, you can't connect with that 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 one. Um, it does touch... See, I I think I, I did try and look it up, I think, but um, I, I either can't remember if I found anything, or I didn't find anything, or what, or I didn't even look it up, but it does touch on uh, the homosexuality of Jager Hoover 
and Army Hammer's character, his kind of right hand man, Clyde Tol Tolson, I think his name is, um, which I thought uh, was very, which I didn't know about, and I thought it was very interesting because obviously at the time you couldn't explore it like being gay was kind of looked down upon and stuff, and so like he ends up marrying someone like you never see the wife, but like it's I think that was kind of an, an interesting thing, and I think that maybe we would have been like a more I don't know would have been an interesting kind of thing to to look at. Um, there's some excellent, in terms of kind of visuals, there's some excellent transition shots. Uh, there's a lift scene in particular where they go out, go into the lift as old guys and then they come out as young guys, which is fantastic. There's also some horse racing thing, like they shoot them side by side, which I think is really good. Um, this is a part where they, he goes through multiple writers at one point, which, I, which is great. And there's just little, little kind of special moments in the film like that, that are like, yeah, that's... That's genius. Um, I think this film does do a very good job of selling the fact that J. Edgar Hoover was ahead of his time. Like he he was championing fingerprints and forensics like way before they were even a thing. There's a part where he kicks everyone out of the smoking lounge so they put like a lab in there and people are complaining and stuff. He fought for more credibility and recognition because it wasn't the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It was just the Bureau of Investigation. They didn't have any kind of laws to back them up. They couldn't arrest anyone or anything like that. And I think that that was really good. And it was really interesting to see kind of the change of public opinion. Like this was one of the things that kind of worked in the fact that it you got more of it. You saw more of time because um, you saw kind of public opinion through like the 20s and 30s when like gangsters were more popular and then like into the 50s and 60s where it's all about the G-men, so it's all about kind of the FBI and stuff. And I thought all of that stuff was interesting, and, and like the, especially the stuff to do with like the forensics and the kind of being ahead of his time and kind of, kind of almost founding this sort of like new way of investigating. And I think I, I personally thought, thought that maybe that was the best bit to sort of focus on. Um, part of me... I mean, I'm probably a bit biased because I did ha do have a background in science, and so that's probably why I enjoyed that bit so much. But I think that that was, out of the things that he did, that was one of the more pivotal things that I think and had the biggest impact. Um, I was thinking about it. If this film were kind of done now, uh, you, I reckon that you would probably get older actors to play the old guys and then the de-age them, so they'd do it like the Irishman. Which, I, it may work better, but I don't know. I mean, like, I haven't actually seen The Irishman, so I can't really give an opinion on it. But this was in 2011, and I don't think the de-aging was any good then. So this, I think it definitely at the time that they chose the right the right thing. Um, yeah, I think there was also a little bit of stuff kind of shoehorned in to this. Like, they've got a bit with Martin Luther King. Like, like it's, it's just for, like TV footage. It's not actually him, but... Well, it is actually him, but it's not like it's not an actor playing him. It's just it's just footage of him. Um, like I mean, it obviously because it, it's in the sixties. Like it's obviously happened when he was in office, and it kind of sells the fact that he's been in office for so long, or kind of been in the FBI for so long. But again, I just think it's too much, and like it feels like it's included just because it can be. Like you've put in the fact that you've put in a thing about Martin Luther King just because you can do. Like I think. You should. They should have just trimmed everything, trimmed the fat, and just gone like, "What's the one thing that we want to focus on?" That's kind of what are the huge things of his life. Um, 
there's a couple of uh, surprise. So we'll go. We'll go on to some fun stuff now. There's some a couple of surprise appearances. Uh, Judy Dench was in this, which surprised me. She plays uh, Jager Hoover's mum, and she actually broke a toe toe while filming a different film, but she didn't tell anyone. So they only found out that after she'd filmed all the scenes that she broke her toe, which I thought was funny. Um, also, Adam Driver has a cameo in this film, which is actually his first ever feature film role, which is also interesting. Which is 2011, that's that's pretty big, like to be able to go from that to being in a Star Wars film in like four years' time. That's pretty cool. Um, also, uh, there's obviously a bunch of cars used from various eras, um, and most of them were kind of donated by collectors for use. But because it's their collectors, they're like massively clean. So, like, they had to spray him with dirt and stuff, which I thought was interesting. Um, and Jacob Hoover's car. I don't know why either... Well, I guess they wanted to get it accurate and use the same model of car that he used or something. I don't know. But they couldn't kind of get it to work without stalling constantly. So, instead of doing that, they had to tow it. Which, I like, why don't you just get a car that works? But I guess they maybe want to stick to realism and stick to what? his actual car was um but yeah i mean all in all i think it was an interesting film about an interesting guy but i think it just suffers from from the scattershot approach and just kind of like let's just do everything which i think is a bit of a shame because i think it, it, like i say it's an interesting he's an interesting guy and there was a lot that you could have done with this um film number two um john number two is john carter uh, so this is a former American Civil War soldier who is searching for a cave of gold uh, gets transported to Mars where he gets caught up in another war. Um, it came out in 2012 uh, with a budget of, get this, $250 million and it made $284 million. So it lost a lot. Like that budget is massive. Um Review-wise, it didn't do amazingly. It got a 6.6 on IMDb, 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. I liked it a lot, actually. I gave it an 8 out of 10. I thought it was really enjoyable and worth definitely worth a watch. Um, so this film's based on a book series by Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, who was around in, like, the... Well, probably when J. Edgar Hoover was st first starting up, like, the 1920s. Um, uh, the, the series is called John Carter of Mars, or it's collectively known as John Carter of Mars. Um... But one thing that I thought was interesting is that Edgar Rice Burroughs is actually a character in this, which I was like, that's a bit confusing. But I, I sort of guessed that the book is done from his point of view, I think. I don't know, which I think is an interesting thing. Um, but kind of in terms of the film, like it was very well worked at the start. It gives you, it immediately kind of gives you questions and hooks you in. You're like, oh, I want to know more about this. Um it kind of uses the same storytelling idea as in J. Edgar, but it doesn't flip between it. It just kind of goes, yeah, this is this is a thing that I've written and there's just a guy reading it and then it just goes back and then that's it. Like, it doesn't flip between. Um, the Earth-based stuff um, at the start, uh, I thought worked really well to flesh out the character. There's about, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes uh, towards the start, where he, 15, 20 minutes where he's on Earth. Um, there's a fun little appearance by Brian Cranston, uh, which is which is nice to see. Which was a bit of a surprise. Uh, there's a multiple. There's a scene where there's multiple escapes where Brian Cranston's doing some sort of explanation, and then 
he just keeps escaping and then they just carry on as if like nothing happened but they're in a different place which I think is funny uh, and it was cut together really well um, uh, also the early so when he first gets to Mars that's a lot of fun stuff because it's he's kind of having to get because obviously it's like science based stuff so it's sort of like to do with the atmosphere and gravity and stuff and so he's sort of a bit like Superman from Earth like he's got like he can jump like really high and stuff because the gravity's lower and things like that um, I think they do a really good job at showing him sort of getting to grips with it and kind of working out his abilities and then like utilising them uh, when he can um, I thought there's some really solid creature design in this film like the thwart there's a alien race called the thwarks that he meets and they're really good um, but I've got to say there wasn't a lot of kind of alien creatures in this film which I thought was a bit disappointing there's some baby ones some baby thwarks which are kind of interesting to see Um they look a bit different. Um, and then there's a dog kind of thing that like, runs incredibly fast, which is quite fun. Um, but that's about it. There is a couple of giant white apes that are kind of mentioned throughout the film. Um, and then... But then, then, then you see them later in the film. And I think the fact that they keep getting mentioned and people are like, oh, I'm scared of them and stuff. There is a payoff to that, I think. Like, I, I, I like them. Um... But the rest of the other Mars races, they just look human. Um, like, one's redder, but they're not, like, inhumanly red. They're not, like, a Star Trek red. They're not, like, we're spending four hours in a makeup chair red. They just look like a... It looks like they've gone to a desert, got tanned, and then they've just put some fake tan on top of that. It's kind of a bit weird. Um, I mean, like, I'm I'm kind of disappointed that they didn't go a bit bolder. Um... I mean, it doesn't detract from the plot in any way. I mean, the only thing that you could sort of argue is that maybe you have a bit of trouble distinguishing between races because, like, the red human... The red... Because there's, like, a race of Martians that are are redder humanoids than, than the other humanoids. I don't know. So... But they wear sort of different coloured armours and stuff. So one's sort of red and one's bluer. So, I mean, I... I, I think the fact that you... That they've done it that way... It's a bit of a shame, especially because it means that you can't really get anyone of colour in there. Like, it's an all-white cast, which I think is a bit unfortunate. I mean, I don't know. It's just it's just one of those things. I think that it would have benefited from having, like, proper, proper red people. Just gone all out. Just have proper red people, and then you have a set of almost, like, regular... What are you like? A, just a generic human-skinned person, like human skin, like you know, like the skin color that we've all, that we all, all the varying colors that we all have, and then the other ones are varying shades of red, basically. And I think that's that would have been better, but they they didn't do that, which is things is a bit of a shame. Um, I kind of enjoyed the whole the whole kind of man lost in a strange world sort of thing, um, and kind of the other characters' interactions to that, like they're very. They, they try and manipulate him a lot, kind of, and try and use him, but he's kind of quite defiant, and he uses his intellect to outsmart him, which I think is, which is, makes for some fun scenes, um, and I think it was, it's nice to kind of, I think having a character that kind of is new to the world, is it's a really good sort of, it's a, it's a staple of the, like, storytelling device to have someone that's fresh to this world, so that 
the the kind of side characters can explain stuff and then you work, find out about the world at the same time that the main character does like they do that in kind of the first harry potter film and things like that and i think that's i think it's it's a trope that works it's, it's a thing that works a thing that like you don't it doesn't bog you down in sort of like you're immediately bombarded with so much jargon and words and you're just like ah, i don't know stop it um but yeah um other stuff, the villain, uh, nothing special really. Um, there's also some weird ethereal beings, including Mark Strong's. Who Mark Strong's? Mark Strong, who is in this? Um, they they side with the villain for some reason. I don't really understand. They like give him the power and stuff. I don't know. It's weird. I think it's that's not really explained. I think they maybe could have done with a bit more explanation of that. There is like something to do with like religion, and they talk about the religious stuff and like maybe the religious beings or something, but. I think, but the only kind of real explanation you get is, this is our God and these are their messengers. And that's it. Like, But I think you needed some sort of like story or legend or something that kind of makes it a bit more exciting, but it also kind of gives you a bit more kind of information about them rather than just like, this is God, this is beings, this is messengers. I don't know. Um, later on, it does come back around to Earth again and explain some of the questions that you have at the start. Um, I think it, I'm not going to spoil it. It does wrap up everything quite neatly, which I I liked it. Um, in terms of kind of asking, tying those, answering those questions and tying off all those strings and stuff. Um, it doesn't tease a sequel at the end. Um, but I think it definitely could have had one. Like it's a solid film to build a franchise on, in my opinion. Um, and I definitely would have liked to see more. Um, but yeah, we'll go into some fun stuff. Uh, the director, I like to say the fun stuff, like that stuff wasn't fun. Well, I guess it wasn't fun. The less, we'll go into the less serious stuff, less, uh, critical stuff. Uh, director Andrew Stanton, uh, this is his first live action film. He actually directed Finding Nemo and Wally before this for Pixar, which are two of the best Pixar films. I mean, all the Pixar films are generally the best apart from Cars. Um... But he later said that he wasn't actually that satisfied with the end product. And he said that he was, and he confessed that he became drunk with power. He basically said that Disney shouldn't have given a first time live action director this much power and stuff. Because Disney basically proved like his giant budget and title changes and marketing and everything. The book was originally called The Princess of Mars. But then they changed it to John Carter of Mars. And then they just changed it to John Carter because Andrew Stanton's like, well, it's an origin story. He doesn't become John Carter of Mars till later in the film. So, uh, which I think doesn't help with marketing. I think, it, like, he, so he, not only did he have, like, say on title changes and stuff, he had the final say on, like, any marketing, which didn't work. Like, all the marketing that he was going for didn't really work. He used, like, Led Zeppelin stuff that people don't really know. And he kind of, I don't know who he's marketing it towards. Like, he gambled on the appeal of the source material, but nobody really knows about the source material that much nowadays. Um, like, all, like this is one of those rare occasions where all the moves that the studio seem to be making seem seem to be the right ones and make sense. Um, like, I don't know. Like, it's Disney, so like they tend to know what they're doing. Like, I don't know why they didn't just go. Why they didn't? Why they gave him so much control? They should have just gone. Ah, we don't want you to have this much control. Like, you did well in these films, but like, because he said that like. 
the animators were way better than the live action stuff. And he was like, oh, the live action, he didn't talk to live action crew like for advice. He talked to his animated friends and stuff like that. And it's just like, okay. I mean, like, obviously he's, he's owned up to it, but I think at the time they definitely should have just put a kibosh on some stuff. Anyway, um, it's also the longest film in development hell. Uh, it was originally going to be the first ever animated film in 1931, speaking of animation, uh, by the Looney Tunes director Robert Clampett, which was obviously interesting. And then it came out of development hell, obviously, to make this film. Um, while they were filming it, they in Utah, they they found a 60-foot-long sauropod skeleton. So obviously, uh, filming had to be halted. Uh, I looked it up. A sauropod is a... It's basically the generic term for like a brachiosaur slash diplodocus sort of that sort of dino. Um, but yeah, I think overall it's a decent film. I think maybe he could have done with a more amenable director. So and you, because he was like didn't want any star like massive stars. So I think you could have had if you'd have got like I don't know if the studio put their foot down and got a bigger name like more marketing power and stuff like yeah I think it could have done well because it's it's a decent film and it's got potential and i think it would i definitely would have liked to see more but i think yeah i think disney just needed to put their foot down a bit and put some disney magic on it put some fairy dust on it anyway uh john q is our third film um so a man takes an er room hostage i don't know why i've put er room because doesn't er just mean emergency room a man takes an er hostage when the hospital won't perform a life-saving heart transplant on his son because of his financial situation uh, this is our oldest film of this week. It came out in 2002, had a $36 million budget, made $102 million, so it got a decent bit of business. Remember, uh, for those that, that regular listen will know, but for those that don't regular listen, they will maybe not know that uh, you, your budget that's quoted is usually production budget, so you need to do twice that because of marketing. Marketing budget is generally about the same as production, so uh, in this case, you would have had they would have had to make, I don't know, like $72 million-ish. Um, so yeah, it's done right. Uh, it's got a seven point one on IMDb, so general public like it. Critics do not like it though; they give it a twenty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I myself, I really liked it. I give it an eight out of ten. Um, I thought it was very enjoyable and kind of a kind of a different hostage film. Like you, you don't see like hostage films are very kind of generic now a little bit, but this was this was a bit different. Uh, Denzel Washington is in this, and he is fantastic as always i put great as always but he was better than great he was fantastic um you spend a lot of time with his family at the start you kind of witness their struggles but also you see their spirit especially the kid like the kid, they he is in high spirits um and i think it's really important that you have that time to bond with the characters um at the start like you just see them in their daily life and stuff i think that was a really good good way of kicking off the film um, and then obviously the the bad thing happens and bad things bad things start. Um, and the moment the kid has his heart problem, I thought it was really well done. But it's completely unexpected. It just catches you off guard. Well, I mean it's expected, but it's it just catches you off guard. And I think it's it it's really good, and you kind of really feel that sense of panic and stuff. And I think it's just really well done and well shot. I th- there's uh, there's some stuff with hospital management uh, after that which is brutal it kind of really shows the gulf between the haves and the have-nots um and it shows like the callous nature of some of those at the top um which i thought was which i thought was interesting um so 
I looked into some of the things of why critics didn't like it. Um, and a lot of the problems seem to be that they feel it's kind of heavy handed in its messaging for kind of when you for like paying for healthcare. But personally, I don't think it is. I think the message becomes more prominent later in the film, but that makes sense because John Q, Denzel Washington's character, becomes more desperate and he pleads, like he he's, he pleads that argument a lot. Um, also, the hostages, I put hostages in like quotation marks because they, they don't see themselves as hostages that much. Um, they're trapped in the ER uh, and they debate it all the time. They're, they're like talking about like, why is this a thing? Why is he taking this hostage? Why is it, why are we hostages and stuff? And it's like, like lots of people seem to be on his side and thing. And I think, I don't think you can have this film without having this argument really. Like you, because otherwise it would just be one of those generic hostage films. But that wouldn't make sense because John Q is just a regular bloke. He's not like a convict or a former military person or anything like that, that you would normally get in these sorts of things or a bank robber. He's just an ordinary bloke. Um, so I don't know. I think the it's not a perfect film. Don't get me wrong. There are a few cases of, well, this is a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Like there's a guy where a SWAT guy, uh, there's a there's a guy. Did I say there's a guy? There's a bit where a SWAT guy practically falls through the ceiling, which you're like, a SWAT guy won't do that. Uh, there's also a news agency that hacks the police feeds, which again, bit far fetched. But I don't think they're completely unbelievable, and the consequences of those I think really justify the means for me. Like there's a beautiful scene where he's talking to his son over the phone, and that's broadcast on TV, and I think it's. It's just a great scene and a great moment, and like, and the repercussions of that are, are brilliant. I think there's a, there's also there is one thing that I kind of can't, I don't really understand. There's a massive crowd forms outside the hospital for some reason, like, and they're cheering him on, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't, what? I don't know whether it's like, why wouldn't you just be sat at home watching this on TV? Like, why is why are the hundreds of people outside the hospital? I don't understand. I don't get it um you guys are crazy anyway um do you remember goodfellas from the other week that film that i hated that people seem to like uh well ray liotta the main guy in that he's in this film as a police chief and he comes in he shows up for the cameras and then he forces himself on the case he's like i'm taking charge and then i mean i don't swear very often but he just shits the bed um, which I th- I really enjoyed that art because screw that guy. Um, the other cop in this who's like negotiating, he doesn't seem. To, I don't know what's going on with the cops because this guy's because really the police chief is awful. The negotiation cop doesn't negotiator. He doesn't do very well. He doesn't seem to cooperate that much because they're like, oh yeah, I want this p- person. And they're like, yeah, I'll write that down. But he's got he's nowhere near anybody else, and he's clearly not writing it down. So I just, I don't get that, but, um, like, I mean, just, what is this circus show? What's going on? Anyway, um, I think this, this film, oh, it does pose an interesting question, because you're like, how, how do you wrap it up? How do you, how, how, what, hmm, how do you, how do you end this? Because if the police or the hospital cave in, and then it gives you anybody free reign, who can't like anyone who can't pay for medical help they've got free rating but if they don't to like 
takes people hostage and stuff. But then if they don't cave in, then a young kid dies and they're the villains. So like, I don't know. I'm I'm not going to spoil it, but I feel that the way that they do end it does work for me. I think there's a couple of other ways that you could do it, but I think they've all got their own problems. And I think each way, there's pros and cons for each ending, but I think this one that they chose works works pretty well. Um, let's go on to some uh, interesting tidbits. Um, so there's a scene where George Bush, the then president, is on TV talking about healthcare. Um, but at the time, the election result wasn't out. So like at the time that they filmed this, they, the election result wasn't out. So they actually shot that scene again when with Al Gore being on the TV talking about healthcare, which I thought was interesting. Um, so they didn't film in an actual hospital. They shot this in government buildings. Like, But it turned out that the government buildings were next door to a hospital. And so when filming happened, they actually sometimes needed to close the actual ER of the hospital. So even though they didn't film it in an ER, they did actually close an ER for the filming, which I thought was ironic, really. Um, and lastly, it's uh, this film is dedicated to Sasha, uh, the daughter of the director, Nick Cassavetes, uh, who was born... Uh, Sasha was born with a congenital heart defect. Um, and so Cassavetes, obviously, this is quite close to close to home, this, this film, and he later went on to direct My Sister's Keeper that paralleled uh, Sasha's medical experiences as well. So he's obviously getting a lot of kind of inspiration uh, for his films from his daughter. And I think it's it's, it's good that he can put that out there. Um, I think this is a pretty good film with a few forgivable flaws, um, despite what critics say. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. In my opinion, I think they're wrong this time. Uh, as they were with God, God, Godfellas, Goodfellas. By God, it was awful, fellas. Um, anyway, let's move on to the next part. That's right, we're on to... What is it? Film that wasn't... I'm forgetting the name of my own things, then. Uh, and this week, we're talking about Gates of Fire. Um, as you will know from the title of the show... Um, let me take you back to 480 BC. You weren't expecting that, were you? Um, 480 BC, the Greek and Spartan forces held back the Persian army um, for three days at the narrow coastal pass at Thermopylae. This bit, this narrow pass was known as the Hot Gates or the Gates of Fire. We're going to go forwards now to 1998, which is normally the sort of time that I start anyway. Um, and... In 1998, Stephen Pressfield, uh, Stephen spelt wrongly with a V, uh, he wrote a, right, let me just, let me just say this, because Stephen, with a V, obviously people say, oh, well, well, Steve, the way that you write Steve is with a V, so obviously Stephen is right, but that's wrong, because obviously you wouldn't put, why would you put a PH in there if you've already got a V? So Stephen with a PH clearly came first, so it's clearly the original and clearly the correct way of spelling it. And the V came later because people couldn't understand PH and they couldn't understand how how you write it. And they've just gone, oh, well, we'll just write it phonetically. So, and that's why you've probably got the... That's why you have uh, Neve, spelled N-E-V-E, 
when it should be spelled N-I-A-M-H because that's the culturally correct way of spelling it and things like that. Just, just Stephen is spelled with a P-H and I uh, will not hear anything to the contrary. Um, so Stephen Pressfield, I'm sorry, but your parents named you wrong. Anyway, he wrote a f- historical fiction novel based on the events and... He actually previously wrote screenplays uh, before 1998, but he started writing novels with The Legend of Bag of Vance, uh, which was itself made into a film with Will Smith and Matt Damon. Um, but uh, And then he wrote uh, Gates of Fire, which proved to be massively popular, uh, going on to be studied by multiple military units for its depiction of war and tactics. Um, most importantly, though, for this, for our little project, um, it was beloved by George Clooney. Uh, in 2000, he said that Gladiator is my favourite film of the year, but Gates of Fire is a better story. Um, and that's lucky for him because he actually snatched up the rights uh, for Gates of, for the book um, with his production company, Maysville Pictures, and he hired Self, David Self, to write it. Uh, David Self will go on to write Road to Perdition and The Wolfman. I don't really, haven't heard of any of the other films that he's done, so... I don't know. Writers are, are hit and miss, I find. Anyway, uh, Clooney, obviously, because he's producing, was rumoured to play a part. Um, but also, another person that was very keen on being in this film was Bruce Willis. Uh, George Clooney said that Willis calls me about every two months asking what's going on. He's dying to do it. Um, so you've got actors potentially, you've got producers, you've got writers. What do you need now? You need a director. And Michael Mann, who was the director of Last of the Mohicans, the Oscar-nominated insider, and he he steps up to the plate. Um, so he's got history with historical films, pardon the pun, uh, with Last of the Mohicans. But that came out in 1992. We're now in 2000-ish. And he's evolved in the way he he does films. Um, And so it would have been interesting to see the meld of old man and younger man, newer man. Not younger man, newer man. Um, But let's go back to 480 BC for a moment and find out what this story actually would have been. So it would have followed a boy uh, who survives his city being destroyed and is taken in by Spartans as a slave. Uh, it follows him and multiple other characters as the Persian army becomes more of a threat and the Spartans have to side with the Greeks to protect their land. Um, so the book has a big focus on kind of grounding the war side and having like a kind re- of make it kind of as realistic as possible sort of thing. Um, but it also gives like a really detailed account of kind of the Spartans training slash torture. They basically tortured themselves, didn't they? Um and their strategies um also a little possible bisexuality but we'll uh we'll we'll skim past that but i think all of that gives a really strong starting point for the film and it's kind of really exciting project prospect for like a swords and sandals war film because like before then because they i feel like they haven't really focused on like strategies and kind of grandiness and stuff and i think that would have been made for a really interesting film um but um, around this time, um, in the early 2000s, a couple of other sword and sandal films came out. Troy and Alexander, uh, they both came out in two... They've got some similar similarities, these films. Uh, they both came out in 2004. They were both made for between 150 million and 200 million, which is big money. 
and they both bombed, uh, causing some hesitation. And in the case of Michael Mann, a lot of hesitation, so much so that he decided to leave the project, citing creative differences, which basically means, I don't think this is going to be any good. Basically because he knew that the project needed, well, it was projected to have a $170 million budget. So he knew that it just, it was like it was probably going to bomb basically like it he thought the market is market isn't there like it's not going to do well so um so in on the back of that another film based on the battle of thermopylae starts to rear its head because as well as gates of fire being published in 1998 another thing based on another literary work based on the battle of thermopylae uh, was published in 1998 and that is the graphic novel by the madman that is Frank Miller called 300 um, and that is a stark contrast against the fire it's got glorified violence and hunchbacks you've probably seen the film um, the producer of 300 Gianni, Gianni uh, Nunari he actually failed to get the rights to Gates of Fire in the end uh, originally so he settled for the rights to 300 um, little did he know that that was the actual film that was going to get made? Um, but yeah, after the fail of, failure of the typical sword and sandal film, um, yeah, after the failure of the typical sword and sandal film, uh, the way was then paved for a different kind of sword and sandal film, uh, one that was mainly CGI and that knocked a hundred million dollars off the Gates of Fire budget. So obviously, it's a lot, lot cheaper and a lot easier to make. Uh, and so 300 came out uh, it made a lot of money uh, 400 million dollars in fact and it got some positive it's got generally positive reviews um, and so the fact that this this happened basically killed Gates of Fire obviously it was pretty much dead in the water when Michael Mann left anyway um, but uh, there is still hope uh, Stephen Pressfield actually says that he's waiting for the decisive element um, and basically asked Ridley Scott, are you listening? Are you listening, Ridley Scott? He wants he wants you to do it, Ridley. Ridley. Um, I don't know. It could still be good. Um, there's definitely room for two films based on the same thing. I mean, you get it all the time. You got White House Down, Olympus Has Fallen. They came out in the same year. Um, and I think the thing that would help this is the very different approaches. Um, and let's face it, it's been over ten years since Three Hundred came out. Um, so you could do it. It wouldn't. I don't think you'd have many comparisons. I think it'd be all right. Um, but let, but an interesting thing would be if Gates of Fire had actually come out, because uh, maybe he wouldn't have got 300, um, and so maybe Zack Snyder wouldn't have been given Watchmen or Man of Steel, which would have been interesting, and maybe DC would be in a different place. Or, he, But Gates of Fire also could have just come out and bombed like Troy and Alexander and nothing would have changed. So. We'll move on to the last but not least, section of the show. And that is Quick Fic. Uh, it's where I take one of 20 characters and put them in one of 20 film franchises and try and make a prequel, sequel, spin-off, or a reboot of them. Let's see what kind of film we're making. It's a reboot. We're re- what are we rebooting? We are rebooting... Oh, no, I've clicked on the wrong thing. We're rebooting Jurassic Park. We're rebooting Jurassic Park with Kevin McAllister from home alone right i mean my immediate thing is 
Kevin McAllister is... But you, you'd have to take kid Kevin McAllister, wouldn't you? So my thing is that Jurassic Park, that he is a kid that is left, that he, I don't know, maybe his dad or his, he's got some sort of relative that works on the park. I know this is going to sound very much like Jurassic World, but that, um, and that he uh, is left alone and then some dinosaurs break out or something and then he, uh, has to defend stuff by making traps and things and he tries to make the traps on for the dinosaurs and things he basically home alones it which i think would be quite fun um the other thing is you could you could just put kevin McAllister in any of the other jurassic park films you put him in the 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 lost world and the the one where the t-rex comes to los angeles or wherever it is san francisco new york i don't know some american city and on the coast, I guess, and uh, break free, and then he's in a house or he's in a department store or something, and he does lots of traps for the dinosaurs. I think that'll be fun, just Kevin McAllister roaming around Jurassic Park making traps for dinosaurs. Uh, he becomes he becomes Master Trapper. I think that'd be kind of fun. Um, I don't know. I think that's, that's all you can really do with this, I feel. You can't... To reboot Jurassic Park, it has to basically be the same thing, pretty much. That it's that you've got a park with a theme park with dinosaurs in it. So you're keeping that, and then you've got. I mean, you, they they don't have to escape. I guess you just have maybe maybe we flip this. Oh, maybe we flip this. Maybe it's a theme park with dinosaurs, but the dinosaurs don't break out. But the but there's people trying to break in to get to the dinosaurs and to make their own park or something. And Kevin McAllister does Home Alone style traps on the intruders. And some of those traps involve dinosaurs. Oh, yes. Yes, I like it. Let's do that one. I just hit a thing on my in my room. Never mind. Anyway, uh, that's the one I'm going for. We're flipping it. We're rebooting Jurassic Park and we're flipping it. Oh, I've got a uh, message. It's fine. Um... Anyway, uh, that's that's that. If you have any other ideas for how we can reboot Jurassic Park with Kevin McAllister, uh, please let me know. Um, I'd love to hear them. Uh, you can f- send them to me on Twitter at AllOutWorker or you can send them to me by email at fillmeuppod at outlook.com. Um, you can also find me at those places if you want to talk to me about any, any film stuff, any of the stuff that we talked about this week, any of the films that we've talked about, if you've got any suggestions for any other films that weren't, I don't know, whatever, anything. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you will actually see on Monday uh, what films I, I will be covering uh, for next week. So next week it will be set K, J, K, Jet, set K. So you will see the three films that I will be covering next week on Monday. Um, so you will be able to watch along or just get a little sneaky peek. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Um, also, I, I don't actually ask this very often. Well, I don't think I've asked it at all yet. But if you are listening and you do enjoy the show, please could you uh, tell your friends about it um, or or uh, and or give me a rating on your platform of choice. That would be uh, that would really help out and just kind of get more listeners and stuff. And I think, because uh, if you enjoy it, then uh, share it about. I think that that's a, a a good thing and a nice thing to do. And I would very, very much appreciate it. Um, and I would also really, really appreciate it if you uh, came out next week, because I will be here and hopefully I will see you 
then. Thank you very, very much for listening, and I will catch you on the flip side. Bye.